All right, friends, how are you this morning? Well, everybody got quiet. You were all so clamorous there. How is everybody this morning? Good. Would you stand back up on your feet? If you've taken your seat, you're able to be on your feet. Let's, as we prepare to open up the scriptures, let's declare our faith together this morning. Say it with me, brothers and sisters. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. If you can agree with that, say it real loud. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We are talking about sex this morning. <laughs> Best opening to a sermon ever, right? That's what they teach you in seminary. And just, you know, if you're going to address something, just head on, right? But we are, Eugene Peterson, we're in this <laughs> series called How Do I dot 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 and this morning we're talking about find uh, how do I find uh, true love which is really just a conversation about marriage and singleness our sexuality and how it all fits in the plan of God and as we're working our way through Proverbs we're remembering that Proverbs is part of what is known as the wisdom literature of scripture so we have a uh, narrative helps us know who we are where we've come from and where we're going We've got law in the Old Testament that gives us some idea of what God requires from us. We've got the prophets who speak the word of God into a specific situation for the people of God. Uh, we have the Psalms that really answer the question, what is it that we want to say to God? And then we have wisdom literature, Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Pastor Tim did such a beautiful job last week setting all of this up for us. But you ask the question, what is it that wisdom is getting at? And I think that Eugene Peterson gets it so right when he says this, that wisdom, what is wisdom literature trying to teach us? Well, it's trying to teach us the art of living skillfully in whatever situation we find ourselves. And when I think about our sexuality in 2021, that just is a situation, isn't it? We're so confused and we're so muddled and we're so broken. We're living now in our country, 50 or 60 years on the other side of what's known as the sexual revolution, the 60s and the 70s here in the United States, it was felt that the church's way of talking about sexuality, the traditional way of thinking about sexuality, was oppressive and it was limiting and it diminished human life. And so what we did is we threw off all of that stuff and we said, sexuality is a means for self-expression. You should be able to just sort of discover yourself in it. Nobody should tell you what you should or shouldn't do with your sexuality. And as the British say, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, right? Like a tree is known by its fruit. How is that going for you? And here we are now 50 years on the other side of that. And our sexuality is a complete disaster. It's a huge mess. And I think that that breaks the heart of God. I'm not sure that God is up in heaven going, oh, they've wrecked it. Throw fire bolts at him. I think that it... Well, I think that it hurts the heart of God because I think that this part of who we are is given to us as an immense gift. It's a beautiful thing. And when we steward it in the right way, it actually leads to our flourishing and the flourishing of all people around us. So this morning, I'm going to take us to the book of Proverbs chapter 5. If you have Bibles, I'll invite you to turn there to Proverbs 5. 
And I'm going to start there, and then I'm going to take us, I'm going to use that really as a doorway into the biblical vision for our sexuality. Just some basics here. Remind you of what the scripture teaches, and then invite you into the mercy of God that restores and renews all things. And so, Lord Jesus, here we are before you, needing your help, needing your help. We are grateful to be alive. We're grateful for the gift of life. We're grateful to be in this place with friends and brothers and sisters. We're grateful to be in a space where we can open the scriptures together, where we can wrestle with these matters, where we can lift up worship to God. We're grateful for the sunshine this morning, even the moisture in the air. What a gift that that was. Everything is a gift, as James says. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting Shadows, we receive all of these things this morning as gifts. And we remember in this place this morning that there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears hasn't been perfected in love. And so we pray that the love of the Lord would invade this space this morning. That it would drive out all fear and that you would make us once again your bold, stout-hearted, confident people ready to do what's good. Grant it, we pray. We say, may the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, my son, Proverbs 5.1, pay attention to my wisdom. I love that it starts with my son. We're remembering here That Proverbs isn't just addressed to young people, but that when it comes to the wisdom of God, we're all young people, right? Needing to grow up into the wisdom of God. So my son, pay attention to my wisdom, turn your ears to my words of insight, that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulterous woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death and her steps leads straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths wander aimlessly. She doesn't even know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Don't turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Don't go near the door of her house, lest you lose your honor to others and your dignity to one who is cruel. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich the house of another. And at the end of your life, you're going to groan when your flesh and your body are spent. You'll say how I hated discipline and how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors. And I was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. So the writer of Proverbs says, Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares? Well, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. And may your fountain be blessed, he says. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sins hold them fast. For lack of discipline, they will die, led astray by their own great folly. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, the writer of Proverbs, here's a lot going on in this chapter, but the writer of Proverbs, I think, is setting in front of us two understandings of our sexuality that are crucial for us to make sense of. One, the writer of Proverbs knows that our sexuality is a source of immense beauty and immense power, that it's given from the hand of God to be that for us. I love the commentary Here of the writer of Proverbs in chapter 5 and verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Water in the scriptures is always a kind of metaphor of the life of God. And so here the writer of Proverbs is saying that, and we'll unpack this a little bit more just a little bit later in the message, but our sexuality is a source of life straight from the hand of God. And when I think about Mandy and I are going on 21 years of marriage, and I think about the most obvious example of that, we have four beautiful Children, they're miracles from the hand of God. Life continues because of this thing. So I think that it operates on that level, the blessing and the power of it. But I also think that it's a source of life 
insofar as when your sexual life as a married couple is working the way that God intends, it's a refuge. It's a shelter. It's a source of refreshing for you. And that's how God has designed it. Don't let your springs of water overflow in the streets or your streams of water in the public square. Keep it where it needs to be so that it can be a source of life and refreshing for you. So it's at least that for us. But it's also, and the writer of Proverbs is very well aware of this as well, it can also be a source of deep anguish and pain. And I don't need to multiply the examples here because I think that probably, actually my guess is that every person in this room In some way, your life has been touched by sexual brokenness. Divorce, infidelity, addiction, even what happens when the sexual life of a married couple just grows cold, that touches our lives, that impacts us. And so just to the same extent that our sexuality can be a source of beauty and wholesomeness and refreshing, it can also be a source of deep anguish and pain. And so what God is trying to do then is he's trying to instruct us in the wise ways that lead us to life. So I'd say it this way. You can put the next slide up on the screen. That the Bible knows that our sexuality is an immense power for blessing or for curse, and therefore it must be rigorously disciplined. Everybody say rigorously disciplined. If it is to flourish as God intends. It's got to be disciplined if it's to flourish as God intends. Now, what I want us to do here for just a moment is think about the reasons why Our sexuality is such an immense source of power. And to do that, uh, it didn't just sort of occur to the writer of Proverbs that like, oh yeah, it seems to be a pretty powerful thing. But the power of our sexuality is actually rooted in the deepest memories of Scripture. Think about Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. The writer of Genesis is witnessing to the theological meaning of the creation of human beings And it says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them both. And God, what does it say? Blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Now, I think here the writer of Genesis is giving us at least two dimensions for understanding why our sexuality is such a powerful driving factor in our lives. Number one, He helps us to understand that what God has done with our sexuality is he's actually implanted his own power for life in our bodies, in our sexuality. So you think about what the writer of Genesis says there in verse 28, that God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says that when we see that word blessing in the Hebrew scriptures, What that means is it's God's power for life released into the created order. And when you think about the way that God could have set things up on planet Earth, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Boom, miracle out of nothing, right? Creation ex nihilo. And it could have been, though, that God having created things that way, it could have been that he decided to sustain things in that way as well. That when we needed more, for instance, peaches, right? We let there be peaches, right? And out of the heavens falls a bunch of peaches, and we enjoy the peaches. Or when we needed more cheese or something like that, right? Let there be what? Cows, and there are cows. Boom, just like that. Fiat. The miracle. It could have also been that when we needed new human beings on planet Earth, it was let there be human beings, and there are human beings. And the stork brings babies out of the sky, right? But it doesn't work that way. But what does God do instead? God actually takes his own divine power And he writes it into our DNA. So we're not talking about just pure biology here. We're talking about the very power of God is written into our flesh. And we experience it that way. We're holding something of the divine power in our bodies when it comes to our sexuality. That's one of the reasons why it is so powerful and why it's such a strong 
urge inside of us. But the second reason I think that our sexuality is so powerful is that you think about when God creates human beings here in Genesis. He doesn't say, let me create human beings in my image. And my, he doesn't say that, does he? What does he say? Let us create human beings in our image and in our likeness. And then when God creates human beings in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them both. Our maleness and our femaleness and the desire that we have to couple with one another, that's actually part and parcel of our being created in the image and the likeness of God, who is not a solitary being, but he's eternally one God in three persons. That one in three is mirrored in our being created in the image of God, male and female. So you have those two things. You have the power for life, and then you have the very image of God seeking fulfillment in us and being coupled with other human beings. Guys, that is what makes our sexuality so powerful. And it invests it with a dignity, I think, that the world cannot match. Okay? One of the things, in my opinion, that we do in our culture right now is our culture, on the one hand, has exalted our sexuality all out of proportion to anything that's healthy, right? It's made sex the end-all and the be-all of existence. But just to the same extent that it has done that, in my opinion, it's also degraded and lessened right? our sexuality. It's trivialized our sexuality so that when we start talking about the wise stewardship of this immense gift with people in the world, they just have no concept that it does not make any sense to them. I remember being a senior in high school. I uh, went to Christian school most of my life, was homeschooled until fourth grade, uh, Christian school until 11th grade, and then senior year, I went to the public high school in our little town, Marshfield, Wisconsin, and one of the classes that I took my senior year of high school was choir class. And uh, I sat next to this guy, one of my best friends uh, in school. He wasn't really a believer, but his name is Ben Baltus. And Ben, if you're by some miracle of the internet, you're listening to this. I love you and I miss you. But Ben, Ben was always trying to make sense of this guy who sat next to him in choir class that was really passionate about Jesus. And so Mandy and I, I think we're in our first year of dating. We're about six months or so in maybe. And we had made a decision during that first year of dating just in the interest of creating some discipline, right? around our dating relationship, we decided in that first year that we were dating that we were not going to kiss. Now, that may seem kind of homeschooler-ish to you, and I'm not trying to insult you if you're in homeschool. I was a homeschooler, okay? But it was just like what we needed. We just thought that that was like a good way to honor God with our bodies. And so I was sitting next to Ben one day, and we were rehearsing Handel's Messiah, you know, hallelujah, hallelujah, for our Lord God on me, right? And the tenors and the altos and the sopranos, and everybody's trying to figure it out. And Ben and I Somehow we're kind of whispering to each other, talking about my dating relationship with Mandy. And it comes out that we'd never kissed. And Ben loses his stuff, like right in the middle of choir class. And he looks at me with this, like, what, like, what planet are you from? But you never, you're not, what, why? Are you psychologically healthy? <laughs> you know, is there something wrong with you? Is there something wrong with her? Do you not... Like, how, how, how do you know? How are you ever going to know if you love this girl unless you get mixed up with her physically in some way, right? And so he's like, as the altos and the sopranos and the tenors are doing this, Ben is yelling at me in the middle of choir class, like, what's the matter with you, man? You know, and I'm trying to like calmly and patiently explain to him that we're just trying, we're saving ourselves for marriage and all that. And everything that I say is adding fuel to the fire, is just complete chaos. But I remember... That was such a moment for me of realizing that the way in which in the church we think about our sexuality is so different than the way that the world thinks about our sexuality. Wendell Berry said it so well when he said that trying to draw the line where we're currently trying to draw it with our sexuality between carelessness and brutality. Think about this for a minute. Trying to draw the line where we're trying to draw it between carelessness and brutality. Pause that thought right there. That is what our culture is trying to do, okay? We basically say, hey, sexuality is like an opportunity for you to express yourself, and nobody should be able to tell you what to do, and you should be able to just do whatever you want to do, blah, blah, blah. And then we're shocked that there are so many instances of sexual abuse and perversion in our culture. 
And Barry is drawing attention to this by saying that trying to draw the line where we're currently trying to draw it between carelessness and brutality is like insisting that falling is flying until you hit the ground and then trying to outlaw hitting the ground. (laughs) In other words, if we're careless with our sexuality, bad things will result from it and we shouldn't be surprised when that happens. So when we come then to the wisdom of Scripture for our sexuality, I think that the thing that we need to understand is that God, brothers and sisters, is not trying to hurt us. God is not giving us discipline for our sexuality because God hates our sexuality. I have news for you. God invented your sexuality. And it's a great idea. I think it's one of his better ones, really. (laughs) He's not trying to throw a wet blanket over our joy. He's not trying to diminish our freedom. In fact, God is trying to stoke the fires of our joy. He's trying to stoke the fires of our freedom. He's trying to make every element of our humanness everything that it can be. God doesn't hate you. God loves you. If you don't hear anything else this morning, please hear that. God is not trying to hurt us. He's trying to help us. And so what does he do? He sends wisdom to our side to instruct us in the wise stewardship of this immense gift. So what is it then that the Bible teaches us? When we think about the way in which God instructs us with respect to our sexuality, what are like the big categories of thought? What are the big guardrails that God puts around our sexuality? I'd say that there are two large callings of the Lord for our sexuality. One is that we are called to be chaste, which means no sexual activity outside of marriage. The Apostle Paul put it so well, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16, when he wrote, flee, everybody say flee, flee sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. Paul says you were bought at a price Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Everybody say, flee sexual immorality. (laughs) It's not like Paul is like, listen now, for some people, they have discovered that it's a good thing to flee from this, that, or the other. That's not what Paul is saying. Flee, just run. Everybody, all of you, 100% of you, run from sexual immorality. Say, what is sexual immorality? According to the Bible, right, scriptural definition of sexual immorality is that all sexual activity that takes place outside of the confines of marriage, that's sexual immorality. We are called to be chaste. Now, this is one of the things, by the way, that represents maybe, it's one of the largest, I think, fallacies of our culture in this moment, you know. One of the things that you'll hear people say often is that, like, this is a comparison. I didn't make this up. This is a comparison I hear. You probably heard it as well. Like, hey, when you're getting ready to buy a car, you know where I'm going with this. Yeah, you got to test drive it first, right? So how do you know if you're going to have a happy and successful marriage with a person unless you test drive all of the elements of it first, right? So we need to have some kind of sexual activity with this person to figure out if we're compatible with one another. And you ought to probably move in as well. You play house for a little while and see if that'll like work for you and all of that and Let me just try to be like as straight with you as I can be on this. There is no way to simulate what it's like to be married. The entire central dynamic of marriage, which is, oh, I'm committed to you until death do us part. Even when your breath smells bad and your hair's out of order, and you have annoying habits, and I don't really like your family very much, you know, like that. That's the part that you cannot simulate. 
by having sex outside of marriage and playing house and all. You have to actually get married to experience marriage. Can I get some married people in the room to bear witness with me this morning? Thank you very much. So you say then, and this is going to, now I'm talking very directly to all of the single people or the dating people or parents of teenagers in the room. Okay. How then do you know if this person that you're potentially thinking about marrying is like the right one for you? I've got three things for you. I don't really often get like super practical like this, but I'm going to get like super practical with you for a second. And, and I'm going to get kind of preachery for you on a second. I'm going to give you these things in three C's, okay? Three C's. And I'm no Glenn Packian, but I do try. And that's a Glenn Packian move. So I'm learning from the best here. Here we go. Three ways that you can begin to discern whether or not this person that you're dating is right for you to marry. Number one, chemistry. Uh, Do you like being around each other? Is this a person that you are attracted to? Now, I know, I know. Some of you are sitting in the room this morning and you're like, why would he even need to say this? Why would I be in a relationship with a person that I didn't have chemistry with and I wasn't attracted to? Well, the sad reality is that there are a lot of people in the church that just tend to over-spiritualize dating. I just really feel like God has like called me to be with this person. Okay, well, that's fine. But like, do you like them? <laughs> it really is important. I do remember talking to this gal on seminary, a friend of mine when I was in seminary 15, 16 years ago, and I hadn't seen her in a couple months. Bumped into her in the library, said, hey, you know, I can't remember her name, Sarah or something. Hey, Sarah. How are you doing? How's it going? She goes, it's going great. I go, anything new in your life? She goes, yeah, I'm dating. I go, that's amazing. How is it going? And she said, oh, it's so hard. It's like I was like physically alarmed by that, you know. She goes, oh, it's so hard. I go, really? She goes, but we just feel like God has called us to be together so we're persevering and we're working on our issues. And it's, it's like, I didn't want to like, far be it from me to tell anybody that they haven't heard from the Lord. But sister, you haven't heard from the Lord <laughs> on this one. If you're struggling in the first two months of dating, God's not calling you to be together. <laughs> There'll be plenty of time later for perseverance and struggling and working (laughs) on all of your issues. Trust me, there will be plenty, but not now. (laughs) In your dating, it should be all fun and happiness and joy, and you should have difficulty keeping your hands off each other. You should need rules, you know, and all of that. You really do need chemistry. And honestly, I think about... Mandy and I, we had 21 years of being together. Our chemistry has actually carried us through some really difficult seasons when we were just in like these protracted arguments, convoluted craziness with each other. You know how refreshing it was to be able to go over and over again. To be, just stop with all of that stuff. Can we just go get an ice cream cone and watch Parks and Rec? You like need that, you know, to sustain you. Chemistry is like really important. So the first thing is chemistry. The second thing I'd say that you need to figure out is character. Character. Is this a person that you can build a life with? Oh, but he's so attractive. Oh, but she's so good looking. Oh, but you should hear him tell a story. He's amazing. Oh, well, he's got this. He's got that. Well, you know, his prospects are really good. You know, well, she's going to an Ivy League school. Well, my parents, you know, just stop. It's like the basic stuff is what you really want to figure out about another human being. Character. Can you build a life with this person? This is why you date. You're trying to see this person in a lot of different contexts and scenarios and situations, and you want to see that over time. Because I've got news for you. Walking down the aisle with this person is not going to fix their character flaws. Yeah, okay. I'm going to bite my lip for a second here. It's not going to fix their character flaws. It's actually, it's far worse than that. Getting married to them is probably going to exacerbate their character flaws. It's going to make them far worse, okay? So you need time, okay? 
to figure out if this is a person that you have a reasonable degree of confidence that you can build a life with them. Character, chemistry is important. The third thing I'd say is important is calling. Do you, generally speaking, have the same ideas about the future that you desire? And this is almost a no-brainer as well, or at least it seems to be that on paper, but unfortunately too many people just don't really ask this question And so they get way too deep in the relationship and then all of a sudden it kind of comes to a head that like, well, you know, like I want to work on Wall Street and you want to be a missionary in Mozambique, but I think we can probably work it out, right? No, you're not. No, just don't, don't, don't pass go. Don't collect $200 you don't want, okay? Don't go there. Generally speaking, do your callings, do they flow together Do you want the same things out of life? Do you desire the same things? Do you sense that the Lord is calling you in a similar direction? If you've got those things, the chemistry and the character and the calling, then you can continue forward, you know? Maybe it is that God is calling you together to be in a marriage relationship. And I want to just add something to this. This is one of the critical reasons why we don't have sex before marriage. Do you know why? Because it will obscure all of this. It will be totally lost on you. You'll be so caught up in the bliss of what you're experiencing physically with one another that you'll never even think to ask these questions until it's far too late. One of the things that's beautiful about sex in the covenant of marriage is that it's psychologically and spiritually, it's a cleanser. How many of you married people know? Sometimes you can just be in the, ah, you're just in an uncomfortable season and then you have a moment of coming together and you kind of look at each other again with those Google eyes that you had. But that's good! When you're married, it's bad. When you're dating, it's very bad when you're dating. So we're chased, right? We're chased. But the second thing that I think the scripture calls us to with respect to our sexuality is that we're called to be monogamous, which means that we stay faithful to our spouses to the very end. And one of the things that happens in the culture and also I think in the church is that we so romanticize the idea of what the experience of marriage is going to be like, that we get into it, and six months later, when all of the gooey feelings have evaporated, and we're left with a person who at 6.30 in the morning on a Monday is nothing like that person that we met in the club or wherever we met them. I don't assume what you guys do, and I don't know. (laughs) Wherever you met this person, okay? All of a sudden we go, well, something is malfunctioning. This isn't what I signed up for, right? And so one of two things happens at that point. We either start making plans to exit the covenant of marriage in some way, so we pull the ripcord on it, or we let our heart wander to another. And so either divorce or infidelity ensues. And I just, here again, is a couple decades of being married speaking here. If you are not prepared for sometimes very long seasons of boredom and frustration, you are not ready to be married. (laughs) You're just not. But the thing about marriage is that, well, you're marrying another human being and they can't meet all of your needs And they can't make you ecstatically happy. And if you put all of that pressure on another human being, you are sure and you are bound to be disappointed. If you're not prepared for this, you're not prepared to be married. Which, by the way, is why we surround the relationship with a covenant of marriage, right? Because the covenant protects the relationship from all of the ebbs and the flows, the highs and the lows of our emotional life, Wendell Berry, or not Wendell Berry, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it so well in a wedding homily that he put together where he said that from now on, it will not be your love that sustains the marriage, but the marriage that sustains your love. And those of you that are married in the room, you understand this, that there are times where it will seem that your love for one another has completely died. And yet, you still have this covenant, this commitment that you've made to one another. And what you find over time is that if you'll press through those seasons where it feels like your love has died, you'll find that the wind of the Spirit will actually blow through the covenant again 
and bring it back to life. In 21 years of being married, Mandy and I, married, Mandy and I, our love has gone through these fantastic ebbs and flows. And there have been moments, brothers and sisters, where it has felt like the love has died. But I've got news for you. We're Christians, which means that we have nothing to fear from death because we know that on the other side of death is what? Resurrection. Death and resurrection is kind of our jam, baby. And when you stick with it, and some of you are in impossibly difficult seasons of your marriage right now, and you're thinking about pulling the ripcord or stepping outside of it, and by the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus, I'm telling you this morning that if you'll stay in it, the wind of the Spirit will blow in your marriage afresh. I have seen marriages that were just hopelessly lost and dead. And I have watched the Lord bring them back to life. And it is evidence to me that the Lord Jesus Christ himself has been raised from the grave. I'm telling you this morning, stick it out, persevere, hang in there, but God will see you through to the end. Now, you say this morning, Andrew, all of this sounds exceptionally difficult. It's worse than that. (laughs) It's impossible. (laughs) Which is why you need God. Listen to what Paul says. Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. It's as we submit ourselves to the sanctifying work of the Spirit, we find that we're able to be faithful to God. Can I get an amen from somebody in the house this morning? Now, before we head into the communion here in just a second, I have one more thing that I want to say to you. And I'll try to say this as quickly as I can possibly say it so we don't go way over time, and I already have this morning. But when we think about our sexuality in the kingdom and the good news for our sexuality, we can't just reduce it to our ethics. What does God require and how do we behave? Because our sexuality points beyond itself to something greater. And it's taken me a long time, I think, to realize this in the church. But where it really clicked into place for me was some years ago. I remember after a service, a gal came down to me at the altar, wanted prayer. She was heavy-hearted. You could see it all over her face. She said, Pastor, I need you to pray for me. I said, what are we praying about? And she said, I've been trying so hard. I've been dating this guy for the last couple years. And we've been trying so hard to save ourselves from marriage. And I've spent all of my, she grew up in church, I spent all of my life protecting my purity and watching over that. And this week we went too far. We crossed the line. She said, I lost my purity. I lost my purity. And something clicked into place in my mind in that moment. It occurred to me that the way that we talk about our sexuality so often in the church is that we assume that our sexuality comes down as a gift from God, already sanctified, It's like the nuclear football or something then that we have to protect from the Russians until the kingdom of God. If you're Russian, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. But we assume that it's this thing that then by our own effort and our own strength, we have to manage on the way to the kingdom. We have to keep it sanctified unto the kingdom. And it occurred to me that that's the wrong way to think about our sexuality. That our sexuality isn't a thing that we protect on the way to the kingdom. Our sexuality is a thing that no matter what we have experienced in it, We surrender to Jesus that he sanctifies and brings into the kingdom of God. And I said to that girl that day, I said this, I said, your sister, listen to me. Your sexuality is a gift that God has given to you. And the sanctification of it is a gift that Jesus will give you at the end of all things. So that this moment here, even of your failure, can be an occasion for the sanctification of your sexuality if you'll surrender it to the Lord. And in this space this morning, like I said at the top of the message, guys, all of us have been touched by sexual brokenness in some way, shape, or form. 
And it doesn't matter where we are in this journey. Some of you, you've done a great job of managing that up to this point. Good for you. Surrender it to Jesus. If some of you in this room this morning, you are divorced. Maybe you're divorced many times over. And you haven't lived the kingdom. Surrender it to Jesus. Some of you here this morning, you're struggling with addiction. Surrender it to Jesus. Some of you, things have been done to you that have left you feeling so deeply defiled. Or you have done things that have left you deeply defiled. Surrender it to Jesus. Because you know what the scripture says about Jesus? We are his bride. And he is the bridegroom. And you know what he's doing? He's cleansing us by washing us with water through the word to present us finally to himself as a radiant church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless in everything. And that's not our doing. It's the gift of God. Can we stand this morning and prepare our hearts for communion? the love of Jesus that makes us holy. Church, would you surrender this morning to the love of Jesus? Jesus, we yield to you. We surrender to you. We give ourselves to you. Wherever we are, if we're in this place this morning and our marriage is conflicted, we surrender it to you. Sanctify it. If we're in a place this morning and we've gone through divorce, we haven't lived the ethics of the kingdom, we surrender it to you. Sanctify it, we pray. We're in this place this morning struggling with addiction and misbehavior. Sanctify it this morning. If we have kept ourselves pure, even that, we're asking that you'd help us not have that become a source of pride. And so we surrender that to you. Sanctify it, Lord Jesus. Sanctify us. And we acknowledge this morning that our sexuality, what it really points forward to is the great desire of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. And so we say this morning, Jesus Christ, claim us afresh. We ask that your jealous love for us would wash over us, that you would teach us to love you and live right because you first loved us. So come this morning, we pray. Wash into us afresh, we pray. Reclaim us again, we pray, and help us rise up again as your radiant bride. Grant it, we're asking in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, let's respond in worship this morning and then Pastor Colin's gonna lead us to the table. He is jealous for me Love's like a hurricane I am a tree Bending beneath The weight of his wind and mercy When all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions Eclipsed by glory And I realize just how Beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me. And oh, how he loves us.
eyes drawn to redemption by the grace in his eyes if grace is an ocean we're all sing. can we sing that one more time together come on we are his portion and we are his portion and he is our prize drawn to redemption by the grace in his eyes if Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Would you do that right now? Would you give him thanks? Lift up your heart to the Lord. Lord, we give you thanks. If you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Jesus, we the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. Would you break the bread together? He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. God, you did this for us. God, I pray as we come to the table of the Lord that we would be aware of our sins we would confess them to you, remembering that you are faithful and just. Forgive us our sins and purify us of, of all unrighteousness. We receive this, your broken body, with thankfulness. Would you take the bread together? In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, proclaim the mystery of our faith together. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. God, we, we, we hold this moment in intention of being strangers on this earth and knowing the fight of, between flesh and spirit. And God, as we receive this cup that represents the, the blood of Christ, may, may we acknowledge and remember what you are purifying us from. Would you receive the blood together? Thank you, Jesus. you lift your voices in doxology as respond together.
hear it from grateful hearts, Lord Jesus. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Thank you for sanctifying us through and through. Thank you that your love is winning the victory in us. Oh, we pray, help us submit, help us yield to it. Brothers and sisters, would you lift your hands like this and receive this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. I'll invite our altar ministry team forward. If you need prayer for anything tonight, we would love to pray with you. Remember, if you're new at Connect Central, we got a little gift for you. We would love to meet you. You are love, New Life East. We'll see you next Sunday.